Good to see so many here this morning. We're grateful for opportunity to study from God's Word. Uh, I apologize again that there are no slides uh, for the lesson. The projector's not working this morning. Uh, but I certainly uh, would invite you to open your Bibles and we'll study together the Scriptures together. As I have mentioned in previous lessons that, um, that some of the things I'm going to be speaking on uh, in the next coming weeks are things that I'm preparing uh, to uh, teach in Africa. Uh, and uh, that's uh, creeping up on me pretty quick here in terms of the amount of work I have to be done. So I'm sort of sharing my time between that so you are going to get the opportunity maybe to hear uh, some of the things that I'm going to speak on. That's the case even this morning. In fact, this is sort of part two of a lesson that we had a while back on the prophecy of the Bible. Uh, it's a subject that we're going to address in uh, the general college teachings in Sierra Leone. And one of the things that uh, I've been called upon to talk about uh, is prophecies as they relate to the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to take a couple minutes this morning and to discuss. Let me start with a question. Uh, why should you believe in Jesus Christ? Uh, what are the good reasons why you should believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I will try to give you an answer to that, not a comprehensive one this morning, but uh, an answer I think that's uh, uh, a compelling one from the standpoint of what the Scriptures actually teach. Uh, but before I talk about reasons why you should believe in Jesus, let me present to you and suggest you some reasons why you should not believe in Jesus. Uh, you should not believe in Jesus because your parents do. You should not believe in Jesus because your family's always believed in Jesus. You should not believe in Jesus because doing so will make your life easier, that things will just go your way if you believe in Christ. You should not believe in Jesus because it will make you feel good about yourself and you'll have uh, a better outlook on life. You should not believe in Jesus because uh, your friends do and because you'll be accepted by others or by, because society believes in Jesus or because it fits into your culture. And all of those things sometimes can be reasons why people will accept what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ and even maybe become Christians. Why should you believe in Jesus? Well, one, I think, positive answer to that, and I think, as I mentioned, a compelling answer to that is the same reason you believe a lot of the things you believe about and that you believe in in your own life, and that is because there is evidence that it's true. So I want you to... Consider with me this morning the importance of believing in Jesus because of the evidence that there is. There is powerful, reliable, and compelling evidence that Jesus of Nazareth, even while He lived upon this earth, was exactly who He said that He was. That He was the Son of the living God. That He was the Messiah that had been promised for centuries to the Jewish nation. That He was the Savior of the world. And that those who believe in Him today still believe that very same thing about Jesus today, even centuries removed from His own life. My task today is to consider the evidence of the Old Testament, the speaking of the words of the prophets of the Old Testament as they spoke about the identity of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus came after, centuries after, the time of the writing of the Old Testament and the speaking of those prophets. So the things that they wrote about Jesus were written in predictive form or prophetic form, that they spoke about Jesus ahead of time, so to speak, about who He would be and what He would do and the characteristics of the coming One, the Messiah. Did the Old Testament prophets readily identify the Messiah? Did they give a reliable picture 
I think what we recognize is that the Hebrew prophets did not leave the Jewish people ignorant about how to identify the one who was to come. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that foreshadow the coming of Israel's Messiah. The word Messiah, as we're using it today, and as we understand it as it's used in the Scriptures, is translated by the Greek word Christos in the New Testament, and that word means anointed one. It comes from the Hebrew word that is used many times in the Scriptures to describe the activity of appointing a priest or a prophet or a king to a particular position. It's one who has been ordained or appointed by God. So when the Scriptures talk about the Messiah, or we use that word in our lesson today, we talk about messianic prophecies, we're talking about the Jewish expectation that there would be an anointed one who would come, who ultimately would deliver God's people, who would lead God's people, and as we're going to notice, would be the one who would save God's people. Now, when we think about prophecy, we recognize that though there are a number of prophecies that are associated with Jesus, we mentioned the term 300, Alfred Edersheim, I think, gives 486 prophecies that relate to Jesus. We recognize not all of those prophecies are alike. Some are clearly predictive. There are others just simply that have dual meanings, where there is an immediate historical meaning and maybe a connected typological meaning. Some are metaphorical where it simply talks about what the Messiah would do. And they don't necessarily speak to the person of the Messiah. They talk about the work the Messiah would accomplish. But when all of the evidence is considered together, is Jesus the Messiah? Is He the Christ, the Son of God? Let me suggest this to you, or maybe more specifically, let me affirm this to you, that if it can be established that He fulfilled the Old Testament predictions about the coming Messiah, then the answer to that question has to be yes. If he's the one who fits the picture, if he fulfilled those prophecies written centuries before about who the Messiah would be and what he would do, then Jesus must be the Messiah. Now, are the prophecies themselves reliable evidence? Sometimes when Old Testament prophets are brought in view as evidence of the identity of Jesus, one common response to that, an objection to that, is, well, the prophecies were written after the fact that the, the disciples of Jesus saw what Jesus did, and so they, they manufactured writings that re- reflect Jesus' life. That somehow these followers manipulated the events, maybe, so that it, they, they knew the prophecies very well, so they coached Jesus, and maybe Jesus himself attempted to reproduce those messianic prophecies in his own life. And so the events were actually manipulated so that there would be a connection between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Could Jesus and his followers have manipulated the outcome so as to claim the fulfillment? Could those things have been written later on after the fact? Let me suggest to you that's not possible. But right off the bat we have to dismiss that. The words of the Old Testament prophets that predict a Messiah would come and describe that Messiah were written 600 to 1,000 years before the time of their fulfillment. In fact, clear evidence of that is that The Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures, known as the Septuagint, was translated into the Greek from the Hebrew language into the Greek language 300 years before Jesus was ever born. So those prophecies and those words were already intact centuries before Jesus ever came on the scene. And we recognize that the the Jews of the Old Testament preserved the text of uh, of those particular Old Testament books meticulously. And they authenticated the text by clearly recognizing the importance of those. And I would suggest to you that's one reason why they did 
so meticulously copy those scriptures and so, and so well preserve their writings of the, those who lived before them, their prophets and their leaders, is because they recognized within those writings was predictions about the one who was to come. It was important that those things be preserved. And so what we recognize is that the prophecies are themselves, as they're written today in our Bibles and as we read them, they are reliable evidence that can be looked upon. The question is whether or not Jesus matches those prophecies, whether or not those things that are written are speaking about Him, and whether or not the things that He did fulfilled those predictions that were made. Did Jesus claim to be the Messiah? Did He present Himself as one who fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Jesus often directed His disciples and listeners directly to the Old Testament's teachings through those messianic prophecies of Scripture for the specific purpose of applying the words to Himself. Turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into His hometown of Nazareth. It says Nazareth where He had been brought up. And He goes into the synagogue as His custom was on the Sabbath day And it tells us there in verse 16 that he stood up to read. This is Luke chapter 4 verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I want you to recognize what a profound statement that is. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he goes into the synagogue and he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah. He's given it 700 years before it was written. And he says, as he reads these things, This is talking about me. And we recognize as well that the importance of this event in the sense that Jesus was presenting Himself in the context not of something that He would do in the future, though that's included in this, but as a fulfillment of a prophecy that was already being revealed. That these are things that Jesus was already doing. He was already preaching the gospel and healing the brokenhearted and proclaiming liberty to the captives. And setting at liberty those who were oppressed. He's already cast out demons. And recovery of sight to the blind and the miracles that were surrounding his life. His ministry was clearly running right alongside the Old Testament prophecies that he was reading from Isaiah. And he said to them, today the scripture is being fulfilled in your years. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. Which I believe is a phrase relates to the time of grace that God had had been planning this day all along and now is the day in which Israel can be acceptable to God. How? Because the Messiah has arrived. In John chapter 5, Jesus upbraided the unbelieving Jews. He says, but you do not have His Word abiding in you because whom He sent, talking about the Father, whom He sent Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Again, notice the powerful, profound statement Jesus is making about himself. I'm the one the scripture has been talking to and you're talking about, and you're unwilling to believe in the Father because you're unwilling to accept me. Jesus often corrected the misconceptions of his adversaries and even the outright rejection of his words by turning to them and saying, Have you not read? 
he take directly take them directly back to the Old Testament passages and either explain to them what the true meaning of those Old Testament writings were, or he would apply them to himself and say, I'm the fulfillment of these things. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, Jesus made the same claim to Cleopas and the other disciple as they returned from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. We recognize the event there that for some reason they're unable to recognize who Jesus is. And he asked him about their apparent sadness. Why are you so sad? And Cleopas answered in Luke chapter 24 verse 18, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things that happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him we, they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is going to make known and reveal himself to these people, to these young, to these two disciples whose eyes are blinded to his physical appearance. They were not going to be able to recognize him physically, but they would recognize him through the teachings of the scriptures. You see that point? How were the Jews to recognize the Messiah? Because they saw him on the outside, because of the way that he dressed, because of what he looked like? These individuals are blinded to the physical appearance of Jesus, but God. Jesus opens up their eyes to who Jesus really is. Standing before them are the ones you see was spoken about in the prophets in the Old Testament. The one who suffered and risen from the dead. In verse 44, it says, And He said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, going back to our original question, it seems obvious that Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You can't get away from that. You see, if you're going to say that, 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 that Jesus did not fulfill these things, that He wasn't the one whom these Scriptures were, taking, were talking about, then certainly He was either delusional or He was an outright liar. Because He certainly believed that He was, and He presented Himself as the one who was, being the, who was the fulfillment of these statements made by the prophets so many years ago. Another element of this that I want to present when we talk about Old Testament prophecy, messianic prophecy, is the persuasive use of prophecy in the preaching of the gospel message. If I ask you why you should believe, and I'm going to present Old Testament prophecy as an answer to that question, one way to present that is to see why people of the first century believed in Jesus. Why did those people believe that Jesus was the Christ? Well, there may be more answers to that. Certainly miracles were a part of that. But it played a major role when Jesus was able to perform miracles before their very eyes. In fact, Jesus called them signs, the works that God had given him so that they might believe. And John says these things were done. The miracles were done so that you might believe. But I'd also lay aside that, the importance and the prominence of Old Testament Messianic prophecies in the teachings of the apostles. That when the apostles went out to make known the gospel that they relied upon those Old Testament things that had been written years ago because they specifically spoke about Jesus Christ. 
and it is by far in all of the pages of the New Testament, it is by far the most prevalent argument made to the identity of Jesus Christ. The argument that says he fulfilled these prophecies to the T. Every one of them speaks about Jesus. We certainly see that in Acts chapter 8, do we not? When the Ethiopian is coming back from Jerusalem, having worshipped God there, and he has in his, chari- in his hand in his chariot the scroll from Isaiah, and he's reading from that familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 53, but he's perplexed about the meaning of it. And the Lord sends Philip to join him in the chariot. Do you understand these things? How can I unless some man shows me? Of whom does the prophet say this, he says in verse 34, of himself or of some other man? That's the question, you see. Who's he talking about here? This lamb that was led to the slaughter, the one that was oppressed, the one, the one individual who suffered for the cause of others, who was afflicted by the Father for the, for the sake of others. Who is he talking about? Well, I would suggest to you first that if this Ethiopian had come under the guidance of the rabbis in Jerusalem in the time he worshipped there, he very well could have been reading this passage because he recognized it to be messianic. He wasn't just picking a passage out of the scriptures, uh, Old Testament scriptures, arbitrarily. That this is one of the most prominent messianic passages recognized by the rabbis of his day. That this was speaking about the Messiah who was to come. But you see, he's perplexed about this. Could this be the Messiah who is suffering? Could he be speaking about maybe himself that Jesus is the Messiah is not really going to suffer? That he's talking about some other man. And so it tells us in the text in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. So Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian through the lens of Isaiah chapter 53. Through the predictive prophecy of one that was going to come, you see, and suffer. Paul often reasoned, and the word reasoned in the scriptures many times it means literally to have a dialogue. He often reasoned with the audience about predictive prophecy in the synagogue. In Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. In verse 2 of Acts chapter 17, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now, we certainly notice the success of the Gospel preaching, but we also need to notice the platform from which that preaching took place. That Paul went in and he explained and demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise again. He did that right out of the Scriptures. The Bereans are the post-children for the effective fulfilled prophecy, I believe. In that very same chapter, in Acts chapter 17, after Paul left Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And it says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent men, women as well as men. Acts chapter 17 verses 11 and 12. Now it says there that they searched the Scriptures. What Scriptures were they searching? What Scriptures was Paul using to explain that Jesus was the Christ? What were they studying? Well obviously this was Old Testament Scripture. But I would take that further and suggest to you that they weren't studying about the walls of Jericho. They were studying the story of Naaman and leprosy. Those, those are Old Testament passages in historical context. That, it, that in view of what was being taught and what ultimately the conclusions were, that what they were studying were messianic prophecies about Jesus. 
that they were making sure that what Paul was saying about who Jesus was was true. And what was their source? It was Old Testament prophecy. Did he fit the bill or did he not fit the bill? Is he the one that God was talking about? You fast forward to the end of the history of apostolic preaching in the Bible and that's in the book of Acts chapter 28 when Paul is back at Rome. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 23, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets and from morning till evening. And some of them were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. You get the end of the apostolic mission to Paul after been preaching for years and suffered for it, preached all over the world and he's back at Rome and he's preaching. You think he pulled out some old outlines? You think he was still preaching the same message? Not only was he preaching the same message, he was preaching the same message with the same resources. And that was Old Testament Scripture. He was pulling out those Old Testament prophecies and saying, look, Jesus is the Christ. These things are written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all of those. Now why? Why go back to the Old Testament Scriptures? Why reference those things written so so, so long ago? Because those Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus offered supernatural evidence that Jesus is the promised Savior and that He's the one they are to believe in. That He's the one whom God had sent. That leads me to believe that fulfilled prophecy is still an irrefutable argument for the validity of the Gospel message. That there's a reason why you should believe in Jesus. Not because most of the world believes in Jesus. Not because of even the effect of Christianity upon society. All of those things add to the argument. But the biblical argument, irrefutable argument that Jesus is the Christ is because of fulfilled prophecy. Now those prophecies are vast and they are powerful and compelling. And at the time that we have left this morning, I want to take a couple minutes and consider a few of them together. We don't have time to consider the 109 predictive prophecies that are established in Scripture or their descriptions. But we'll just mention a few. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when sin appeared in this world for the very first time, Moses gives us the history of God's reaction to the sins of men and involved in God's reaction to the sins of Adam and Eve was the curse upon even Satan himself, the serpent. And what God reveals in Genesis chapter 3.15 is that there was coming a day in which one who was identified as the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent so that the problem of the sin, ultimately, through the initiative of God, would be taken care of. That the tempter himself would be judged. And he describes that one as the seed of woman at this point. And the scriptures are rather obscure saying, but as we go along we recognize that this develops into a predictive prophecy about the coming of Jesus. I believe it points to the virgin birth of Jesus. Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 that Jesus was born of a woman. And that so, so that the aspect of the descendancy that's going to later on be pronounced in Old Testament prophecy about the one that was to come would begin with the aspect he would be unique in, 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 a, in a singular way from every other person who'd ever lived upon the planet. He would not have an earthly father. He would be conceived of the Holy Spirit and therefore could aptly be described not as the seed of man, but rather as the seed of a woman. 
Jesus' virgin birth also was predicted by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it occurred in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The fulfillment of that well-known prophecy makes Jesus, as we mentioned, one of a kind. And then in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the prophet announces and prophesies that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so the place of Jesus' birth is given. And then what, what follows in the Old Testament prophecies is a number of predictions that have to do with the genealogy of the Messiah. The family tree that Jesus would come from, that the Messiah would come from. God narrowed it down. But ultimately eliminating, over and over again, eliminating masses of people who could possibly claim to be the Messiah. And that ultimately there would be only one individual who could truly claim to be the Jewish Messiah. In Genesis chapter 12, it said the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham in verses 1 through 3. And so God eliminates all the families of the earth except for one family, and that's the family of Abraham. Whoever claims to be the Messiah has to be a descendant of Abraham. For God told Abraham that one of his descendants would bless the whole earth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is how Matthew begins his gospel. The very first words of the biography of Jesus establish that Jesus fits the prophecy that he was a descendant of Abraham. He will be a descendant of Isaac. And then later on of the family of, the, of, of Isaac's son, the, the, the son of Jacob. And Matthew, and Matthew records again the genealogy, the fact that Jesus fits all of this. That not only was he from the family of Abraham, but he was not from Ishmael, but Isaac. And not from the other eleven sons of Jacob, but rather from Judah as he describes it even further. And not Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. So you see how God narrows it down from the family of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Judah as the one through whom, the lineage through whom this Messiah would come. And then the Messiah would be from the family line of Jesse. There are many family lines in the tribe of Judah, but only through the family line of Jesse could the Messiah come. He is the branch that will bear fruit. He is the one you see ultimately who will provide the stock of the branch from the, tri- from the stock of David to be king over Israel. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, Then a shoot shall spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. He will, be, he will descend from the house of David. Jesse had several sons, but what, from what one would the Messiah come? And again, the prophets speak up. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, When your days are complete, God says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come, after, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Jesse had at least eight sons and God eliminated seven-eighths of that by saying it's going to only come through the lineage of David. And he gave that information to David. So again, The list of possible candidates of the one who could be the Messiah is narrowed further and further down through Old Testament prophecy. The very first verse of the New Testament, you see, records the fulfillment of this prophecy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Later on in Luke chapter 1, when the when the angel is confirming the birth of Mary's child, that he would, it confirms that he would be a descendant of David. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
Imagine the excitement in Mary's heart. She knew that this baby was going to be from the from her own descendancy, at least from the standpoint of her body, that it might fulfill the requirements of being one who would come from the family of David, but not just any particular descendant from David. This would be the one whom God would give the throne to, who would sit upon the throne. Does it get any narrower? Yes, it does. And Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, what we sometimes call the prophecy of 70 weeks, the prophet predicts the time of the Messiah's death. He says that he will be cut off and that that will happen before the temple and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. So as Daniel looks forward to the end of the 70 years of exile, God gives him a vision here of the fact of the coming of the one, the Messiah, who will, you see, who will arrive and after a period of time will be cut off. Well, when will that happen? The idea of the Messiah's death will happen before the city and the temple are destroyed again. And historically we know the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 A.D. So the Messiah would come and die before 70 A.D. You see the time period narrowing down where God's giving us an un- a looking at the predictions that are there. Now understand that Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament scriptures were well known among the Jews in Jesus' time. And Jesus and other Jews certainly would have known what these prophecies depicted. But could Jesus have ever manipulated that? Jesus certainly literally fulfilled all of these predictions, but there's no way, humanly speaking, He could have deliberately fulfilled them. He couldn't choose His family. He couldn't choose when He was born. And though He did choose certainly when He died, all of those other things that led up to this ultimately had to be fulfilled for it to make any sense or for it to be legitimate. In addition, there are numerous prophecies concerning His death and burial and resurrection that point clearly to Jesus and can only be assigned to Him. In Psalm the 34th Psalm verse 9, it said He would be betrayed by a close associate. In Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12, that He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And then there's that picture in Isaiah chapter 53. Folks, sometimes we get we, we turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and we read it like it's New Testament, don't we? We read it at the Lord's Supper. We read it when we study the crucifixion. We read it when we talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Why, why are we so ready to read Isaiah chapter 53 as though it was written in, by the apostles? Because it's unmistakably about Jesus. You can't just dismiss this. You can't say, well, there's got to be some other explanation. This is talking about somebody else. Even the rabbis recognized that Isaiah chapter 53 was messianic to the core. That there are so many images here that he was a man of sorrow, silent before his executioners, that he had died for the iniquities of others, that he was buried in a rich man's tomb. The rabbis were convinced that this was messianic, but it was irreconcilable with the predictions that are made by other prophets that Jesus would be a king after the lineage of David. And so they got around that by saying that there would be two messiahs. And so they taught that there would be a Messiah who would suffer, who was Messiah ben Joseph, whose hands would be pierced, and he would be mocked, and he would be scorned. But then there would come a Messiah, you see, ben David, who would sit upon the throne, and he would be the king, and he would deliver Israel. The millennials do that today, you see. They say, well, Jesus fulfilled the first part of the Messiah, the Messianic prophecies, now, but he'll fulfill the rest of them when he comes later on. And then they rail at the Jews for making this absurd prediction about there being two Messiahs. I would suggest to you that the Old Testament prophets were talking about one Jesus 
coming one time, making one sacrifice, and being both a suffering servant and a king at the same time. But those aren't irreconcilable prophecies. That they point directly to Jesus from both directions. In the 16th Psalm and the 2nd Psalm that we looked at earlier, both of those Old Testament prophecies envision the resurrection. You will not leave my soul at the grave, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption, David wrote. Peter tells us that David was speaking about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. And then Jesus, hanging from the cross, quotes the first words of the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus say those words of all the things that He could say on the cross? I believe it's because Jesus understood the power of predictive prophecy and bringing about persuading individuals to believe who He was. This was being fulfilled before their very eyes. A psalm that they understood and they recognized as being messianic. The 22nd psalm that describes in such detail one who would die and have his hands pierced and ultimately die a scorned death. And Jesus says, it's happening. And he quotes the first words of those psalms to bring it to their attention. They were witnessing this. Would they believe? Would you believe? The mathematical odds of Jesus fulfilling prophecy, we spoke about this before in our previous lesson. One scholar considered 48 prophecies of the maybe certainly 109 but possibly up to 300 different prophecies that could be attributed to Jesus. One scholar considered 48 of those prophecies and and says we find the chance that one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now I'm not a mathematician but 10 to the 157th power means 10 with 157 zeros after it. We don't have an, I don't think we have a name for that number. The estimated number of electrons in the universe is around 10 to the 79th power. That's how big that number is. All the electrons and everything, and everything that we know about is 10 to the 79th power in terms of numbers. And that's the odds, you see, much greater than that, the odds that one person could fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies by accident. That's compelling to me. Is it to you? Is this make good evidence? Is this convincing? It's been convincing for centuries and centuries and centuries. And the word of God will not pass away. So God's word that he, that he spoke to the prophets centuries before continues to have the force and the power today to take the individual that's not a believer, that's perplexed and confused about who Jesus is, and make him affirm, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, like Peter did. And when Peter made that statement, what did Jesus say to them? You didn't get this through flesh and blood. My Father revealed this to you. Do you know where you got this information? Do you understand how you came to this conviction? Quickly as we, as we end, the previous passage we referenced in our lesson, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. So we have prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, Old Testament prophecy is a light that shines in a dark place. It is clearly powerful evidence. And it commits ourselves to Jesus Christ in a way that no other evidence can. Because even in a century apart from the, from the performance of miracles, we have the prophetic word before us which we can look at and understand and comprehend and which cannot be denied. We dare not ignore that evidence. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The Hebrew writer says, be careful here. This is a word confirmed. This is a word established that Jesus is the Messiah. If you neglect Him, there's not a word to come later on. So be careful that you don't set aside the evidence. Do you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God? If you believe who He was and you believe is the Messiah, do you believe what He says? Do you believe His way into salvation? Do you believe the efficacy of what He accomplished at Calvary? Do you believe He resurrected from the dead? Do you believe that He told His disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Do you believe that He told the disciples, He that believeth and baptized shall be saved? If you're going to believe in Jesus, you need to believe that. And if you're going to believe in Jesus, you need to do that if you're not a Christian. Will you come and be baptized for the remission of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ who died for you, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one ultimately who will judge you in the end. He is at the right hand of God, making intercession for you even today. Will you come? While we stand and while we stand.